Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Gina Tam, who's Assistant Professor of History at Trinity University, and she'll be talking about her new book, Dialect and Nationalism in China, 1860 to 1960, which was published this year, 2020, by Cambridge University Press. On first glance, the idea that people in China speak something called Chinese seems as natural as the notion that in France they speak French, in Kazakhstan, Kazakh, or in Japan, Japanese. But it doesn't take much more than a first glance to realise that there's nothing especially natural about any of these situations, and perhaps least of all in China, which covers a land area the size of a continent, encompassing dozens of different language families and groups. How, therefore, did the idea of some kind of unified, standard, or common Chinese language come about? And what did the Beijing-rooted language we today, at least in English, call Mandarin, become that standard? What of all the many other dialects and linguistic varieties, some like Cantonese, quite well known, others less so, which have just as much of a claim to be Chinese as Mandarin does? What decisions are behind choices uh, of what kind of language should be used to educate a nation, write a novel, organise a socialist revolution, perform an opera, or indeed attack foreigners in rap tracks? Such questions and many others are those answered in Gina Tam's engrossing dialect and nationalism in China, which takes us through a pivotal century and indeed beyond of linguistic affairs in the country, exploring the relationship between ideas of language and nation, the ups and downs of standardization projects, arguments for and against valuing different varieties of Chinese, known as fangyan, and many other topics. Moving smoothly from the late imperial period up to the Maoist 60s and indeed beyond, this book fills in countless gaps in our understanding of what Chinese language, and indeed Chinese identity at large, has been understood to be over the past century and a half. But the author is here to tell us all about this, so I'll say, Gina Tam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really delighted to discuss my book with you. Thank you. Well, uh, I think uh, I am equally delighted to talk about it, and our listeners will be uh, also very delighted to hear about it. Um, but before we do hear about it, um, I'll begin by asking you something about your background and uh, how you came to be interested in uh, questions of language and China and indeed anything else that you're interested in. Absolutely. Um, so I think that what sort of drives my interest broadly, and then we'll get into how I got there, um, is the construction of what it means to be X of collective identities and all of the parts of life that shape and inform the way we see ourselves in a collective and the diversity and texture and conflict inherent in defining what it means to be Chinese and defining what it means to be American, um, to be a woman, and, and all of these different kinds of ways that we define ourselves. Um, and I actually became interested in the question of nationalism quite early on uh, for two reasons um, in my undergraduate education. Um, so I went to college at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Um, and in sort of taking a modern China class, my um, undergraduate advisor uh, gave me a book on nationalism in China. Right, that, um, And essentially, it focused on how the state sort of picks and chooses um, symbols uh, to define what it means to be Chinese and part of the Chinese nation and then promulgate it in sort of a standardized way. Um, mm. And I found this process really fascinating. And it became more fascinating when um, in my third year of undergrad, I, I studied at um, the Chinese University of Hong Kong um, in Hong Kong. And 
while I was there, this idea of how nationalism comes to be um, and using that to understand my own experience growing up in the United States um, felt, I, I sort of had this sort of jarring experience where I started talking to people who pushed back um, against this idea that basically everyone understands what it means to be part of a nation in the same way, in this kind of like standardized homogenous way. Um, and then after I graduated undergrad, I went to China and realized just how much my understanding of Chinese nationalism was just um, just not what I expected it to be. Right? Um, and language was the most obvious way that this happened. And so when I when I was you know stud before I lived in China after I graduated undergrad, I just had this idea of you know I'm like the way that you create a nation is you create these symbols and you standardize them and you promulgate them. And this includes language, like the Chinese language I was learning in classes, Mandarin. And then I get to China and I lived in Shanghai uh, and, I and I spent time in um, Guangzhou. And in these cities, just the sounds of the streets were not Mandarin. And mm. it was that disconnect that I think drove me to this project. Mm. I see. And, and so this was the a doctoral project that you did after those kind of more direct experiences? Yes. So after I lived in China, um, I started a doctoral program at Stanford University. Um, and I was always going to sort of study the creation of nationalism and, and sort of ask these difficult questions of like, why is our history, why are our histories of nationalism so often focused on standardization, when that doesn't seem to be the case that or it doesn't seem to sort of um, capture what nationalism is, um, on the ground today. Um, and then um, language seemed like the sort of the, a great way to get at that question. And so that's what I wrote my dissertation on. And that was then edited into this book. Right, right. Great. And and I just wonder, I mean, uh, you mentioned there studying Mandarin, and we'll get into the kind of some of the definitional questions, and yes. I guess, some other examples of what non-Mandarin Chineses are. But do, uh, out of interest, have you personally studied these various other varieties, if you spent time in Shanghai, did you study Shanghainese or, or, or Cantonese in Guangzhou or others? So I've spent some time studying Cantonese, but I, I have to admit that my spoken Cantonese is is quite poor. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to pick up another language. Um, so I took like two years of Cantonese. Um, and then what I focused primarily on for my research, um, like as I was studying Cantonese, was making sure I was able to read it. Um, mm. And so um, I think I can... I can understand bits and pieces of Cantonese, um, but my focus was on being able to read these written sources. Um, same with Shanghainese. Um, like I, I sort of focused on being able to read sources that were written in these other fangyan. Mm. Um, but my my spoken language, like I, I would not like comfortably say that I have like a a, a solid able like ability to research in spoken Cantonese or other fangyan. Right, right, and I well, I think the question over the possible divergences or relationships between written and spoken language are also pretty central to this yeah. entire study, which I, I think is one of the most compelling aspects of it. Um, Absolutely. And saying that, I, I think we should uh, you know, get into it and, and, and actually uh, discuss how you approach these various uh, fang yen, uh, as we've mentioned already, the term um, and other uh, things that we might label uh, linguistic varieties or languages in China. So to begin, I mean, it's probably the most impossible but <laughs> also a significant question of the book i guess that's how things often go but um could you say a bit more about what a fangyan is i guess it's a term that's often translated as dialect uh, yes. by some people but some people don't like that um and could you sort of say something about it in relation to other 
terms that we have in this sort of field, Mandarin, and indeed other terms for Chinese as well that are used uh, inside and outside China. Yes. So my book is called Dialected Nationalism in China. Uh, but what really it is, is a history of discourse surrounding the Chinese term fang yan. And when we break down the term fang yan, right, fang and yan, we, like it, I think a, a sort of literal translation, like fang often means place, yan means language, right? So the language of a place. Um, and this term has a long history of describing uh, like local languages in China. I mean, as far back, like millennia ago, Right there was there were works that that studied how people said different sort of basic vocabulary in different regions of what today we call China, um, but um, this this term has a really really long history, but it has not always had the connotations that are associated with the English word dialect. For instance, um, when we say dialect, we often sort of imply a certain amount of subordination, right? Like a dialect is a dialect of something. Right. Another connotation of the word dialect is that it is mutually intelligible. Right. So different dialects and whatever language these dialects branch off of um, are mutually intelligible. And these connotations have not always applied or don't apply really to the term fang yan. And because they don't apply today, for instance, we already talked about Cantonese and Shanghainese. Like these are not mutually intelligible. Um, a lot of linguists have pushed back. Uh, against translating this term fang yan as dialect, saying that this is this is a term that is being used, an English translation that's being used to describe something that doesn't match that English, the definition of that English term. Mm. Um, so my book doesn't take a stand on what counts as a fang yan, what counts as a dialect, um, because fang yan is such a big catch-all term that can that can describe a lot of other things that I think linguists would agree would agree do count as dialects. Um, rather, I'm sort of fascinated in how um, the term fangyan in the late 19th and early 20th century started to have these connotations or started to be thought of as dialects, right? How did the fangyan as a constructed category shift in the early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th century? So when I say constructed category, what does that mean? It means sort of understanding how these boundaries change. And in part, that is a history of translation, mm. right? Um, so there is essentially sort of like a history to pairing the word fangyan to the word dialect um, and bringing with it all of those connotations. And that history is in part a history of Chinese linguists beginning to study in the United States and Europe. Um, as well as translating texts from um, European and um, American linguists who imagined these local languages and called them dialects, right? Um, and so that's part of what my book traces is how that pairing happened, right? There's a, a scholar named Lydia Liu who calls that pairing a super sign. Right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and so the pairing of these two words. Um, in addition to sort of me challenging the idea that fangyan have always had these connotations of dialect um, or that fangyan have always been sort of branches of a language and that that's not sort of a new construction of the 20th century, it's also a history of where we start to think of there being a Chinese language in the first place. Um, so you brought up the English term Mandarin, which generally um, is used to describe the national language um, that is taught in um, China and Taiwan, um, in, in China, it would be called Putonghua, uh, and in, in Taiwan, it would be called Guoyu, um, which <laughs> and we can sort of break these down too, right? So Putonghua is like literally like the common tongue, 
whereas Goyu is the national language, right? Like the language of the nation. Um, and in English, we call this Mandarin, which also has a really long history that stems back to describing the language of officials in Ming and Qing China um, and Lord, sort of the language that they use. So there's a lot of overlapping terms here. But I think sort of the core of it, of how we get all of this messiness, is that in the early 20, late 19th and early 20th century, there came to be this contention that we have a Chinese nation and we need to have a Chinese language and we need to define what that is. Um, and so I think that is how, um, that is part of the history of how we end up framing um, Fangyan as dialects because it helps to support this idea that there is a Chinese language and all of these other things are something else. Mm, got it. Right. And, and you mentioned there, I, I mean, it leads us quite nicely on to this broader concern of the book about nationhood and nationalism um, yes. and, and the nation, which uh, it sounds from your kind of self-introduction there earlier was actually your starting point, you know, sort of yeah. preceding the, the the question of language and its place within this. Um, but could you kind of flesh out a bit more the way you see this relationship between language and self-identification, nationhood, um, and, and questions of identity uh, in general? Absolutely. Um, so language is, I mean, even if we sort of go outside of China, language is consistently seen as a core component of a shared national identity. I mean, um, so I live in the United States, I was born here. Um, and um, even though in the United States, we often emphasize in sort of our national identity, this idea of civic nationhood, um, if you survey Americans about what it means to be American, often their number one answer is speaking English. Um, and that's contentious, right? But there is a broad idea that language accords with nation. Um, and I think because of that, this has led a lot of historians to focus on the story of how essentially a nation comes to either have an actual like, defined national language or comes to speak the same language. Mm. Um, and so, for instance, we have a, a book in the 1970s that called Peasants into Frenchmen that focuses on, among other things, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a book that covers a lot of topics, but one of them is teaching people to speak standard French um, and that teaching people to be essentially a citizen of France, right? A Frenchman. Um, mm. And that has also been the case in the history of Chinese as well, is that there's been a huge focus among historians and linguists on this process of, of choosing and promulgating a national language, right? what we today call Mandarin in English. Um, so these narratives are there, and they're certainly a part of my book. Like Part of what my book does is focus on how we create this national language and how, what that does to... Um, a sense of nationalism. But my book, by focusing on Fangyan, um, instead of just how Mandarin became the national language, asks us to reconsider the idea that this sort of standard language peasants into citizens narrative is the only narrative, that this was the only way that people were thinking about the relationship between language and nation, um, because that narrative focuses on homogeneity, right? So, um, if we, we go back to the United States example, right, like everyone speaks the same language, according to certainly some narratives of nationalism in the United States. Um, and that nation building, therefore, is simple, simply promulgating this homogeneity through standardization or through more organic means like print media, oral media, or popular culture. Um, but what my book reveals is that there is a long history that extends far before, like before or concurrent with the national language movement. To, of people pushing back against the idea 
that like a homogenous Chinese identity is the only way we can build a nation. Um, and they often did that by sort of promoting their own fangyan or even just fangyan plural, right? Like fangyan z in, in Chinese, we wouldn't pluralize it that way, but <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? Um, as an integral part of the nation and imagining the nation itself as a much more diverse construct. Um, and they were promoting this in the name of nationalism. And I think the fact that people were promoting this idea of diversity in the name of nationalism, like it certainly shows that the nation was never really homogenous to begin with. But I'd argue it goes beyond that. I think that it shows that the, like, to create a nation, it never really required this standardization. And so what my book asks is that we sort of flip the order of causation on its head and ask not how standardization creates a nation, but how the sort of like the push to create a national identity um, and these sort of ideologies of nationalism influence debates about standardization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess, I mean, the idea that in the Chinese case, that would entail uh, building a great deal of complexity into the system, at least yeah. uh, along the way into the idea of the nation makes a lot of sense, given the uh, scope of what, you know, just the, the size and the internal diversity of this this thing uh, that is referred to as China. Um, yes. I mean, it, it, this, this, this kind of big land empire that, you know, turned into a nation state. Um, so uh, I guess within that, though, um, you have also subdivisions and uh, different groups attributed uh, different national identities and indeed different linguistic identities. Um, so I, I, I suppose uh, within this process of nation forming, um, as well as the idea of China as a as a state, uh, you also have the emergence of, of the Han ethnic group, or yes. such as it might be referred to. Again, not yeah. unproblematically. Yes. But, uh, could, you, could, could you say something about the kind of emergence of this idea within this broader process of uh, standardization and finding a, a Chinese language? Sure. Um, so part of what is happening in sort of the, I think to sort of understand this, we need to look at the late 19th century in China, which was this sort of moment of crisis. So there's a lot of debate among scholars about when we can say there is a notion of a collective Chinese identity and who was included and excluded. How did it relate to land, culture, lineage, language? And um, as you point out, this idea of an ethnicity um, and so these these debates, I think, far out, like predate the modern period. But what is different in the modern period is that there is sort of this moment of immense creativity married with this moment of crisis, right? Um, and so towards the end of the 19th century, um, like for the past several decades, um, the Qing Empire had lost a series of wars against um, countries like Britain and France and um, and, uh, and, and, and sort of in Europe and such. Um, and in 1895, then the Qing loses a war against Japan. Um, and that sort of clicks into place, I think, for a lot of reformers, this idea that this is a pattern of, of, of Qing decline and Chinese decline. And concurrent with all of this, they, um, a lot of these reformers are beginning to learn, study, translate, sometimes via Japan, sometimes via sort of going to Europe themselves. These like essentially texts and ideas from these other countries that frame the world as a world of of sovereign independent nation states um, that potentially can be swallowed up by imperialism. Um, Mm. And these reformers essentially said, we need to make sure that that does not happen to us. And to ensure that that doesn't happen to us, we need to like promote our own idea of sovereignty 
And that requires being a nation. It requires having this cohesive national identity. Um, and so you had brought up sort of um, Han-ness, right? So Han is often framed as China's um, largest ethnic group, right? So China claims to have 56 ethnic groups and the largest is the Han, um, which again, we get into this really messy problem of translation <laughs> because we often translate Han as Chinese in English um, and sort of an ethnic way, not in a, in a, um, in a, in a national citizenship way. Um, that said, um, so concurrent with all of these ideas of what is the Chinese nation, how do we promote ourselves as a sovereign nation to sort of stave off imperialism, um, comes to be, are we sort of in, like, where do ideas about race and ethnicity fit into this? And they're translating texts like Darwin and social Darwinism and, and, and Carl Linnaeus and these ideas of, of the five races, um, into Chinese. And there's, so there's a lot of sort of like dynamic discussion about where the Han fit into this, right? Are they part of a broader racial group? Are they an ethnicity? Are they a race among themselves? Um, and there's, again, sort of a bunch of overlapping terms, but it comes from this idea of this broader question of how do we define the Chinese nation? Are we multi-ethnic? Are we not multi-ethnic? Are we a Han nation? Um, or are we not? Um, and um, the way to me, so to sort of sum up this really messy history here, the way that this relates to language um, is that in thinking about what, the lang what this Chinese language has to be, right, um, you have people who are arguing that there can be sort of a lot of ways to understand what it means to be Chinese linguistically, but it these people often drew a very sharp line between sort of like a Chinese language being all of these Han, Fangyan, and then be like Tibetan and Manchu and these other languages that they believe belong to other ethnicities. Um, and so to some extent, especially this is especially true in the South of China, where Fangyan tend to be much less mutually intelligible, both with one another and with um, Mandarin, which is based on the language of Beijing, where people will say our Fangyan is just as Chinese, if not more Chinese or representative of Chineseness than the language is spoken in the North, because we are essentially more distinct and more pure um, than the Northern languages in relation to other ethnicities, right? So there's sort of like an ethnic purity argument that goes into this um, for making the claim that Fangyan need to be all considered part of this Chinese identity because they encompass this sort of ethnic, ethno-racial understanding of what it means to be Chinese. Right, right. And I guess, I mean, can be a claim to either, yeah, the ethnic identification or simply to being, being able to represent uh, the state too, I guess, once the state has kind of taken Absolutely. shape out of, out of that ethnic identification. A, a friend of mine um, told me about visiting um, Barcelona. He's Puerto Rican and he asked uh, a bookshop seller there in Barcelona whether uh, she had any books uh, like en Espanol. And she said, she corrected him. She said, well, you know, you shouldn't say Espanol because uh, Catalan, which is what lots of this bookshop specialized in, is Spanish. But yeah. it's, you know, but there's Castellano, which is a separate Spanish, but we're both Spanish and kind of, yes. you know, I think even, even well outside the Chinese context in much, in much smaller yeah. places, much smaller yes. uh, land areas, you have similar kind of claims going on um, to identification of that sort. I was going to say, that's a beautiful metaphor. Like that's a beautiful analogy. I think that works really well. 
I guess the other thing that probably should be addressed, uh, given that it's not sort of, um, uh, well, it's pretty difficult to avoid when I think talking about Chinese at large, and it's also been a key point of discussion within China and questions of language is the writing system, which does, uh, I guess, often get labelled as the thing that sort of overlays all of these different ways of pronouncing Chinese or saying Chinese things, but you know, is the thing that unifies uh, the uh, the nation or the people or the the country or whatever you would uh, say at the different points in time. So could you say something about this relationship between uh, the spoken and the written language uh, in terms of the debates that you're discussing? Um, and as a sort of perhaps speculative side question, I mean, how do we study the history of spoken language and fangyan and varieties uh, when we're dealing with a writing system that, you know, perhaps less obviously than alphabetic systems um, does not quite represent orality or, or phonetic components, you know, in writing? Great question. Um, so first, I think when we talk about the writing system, we should probably break it down into two different parts of the writing system that were undergoing these same debates um, in the late 19th and early 20th century that was that was happening with the sort of the question of what an oral Chinese language looks like, which is what does our written language look like? And the first part of that is script. Right. Um, so uh, generally speaking, um, we call the uh, writing system of Chinese Chinese characters. Um, and they're, sometimes they're called logographic. Um, early, late 19th century um, European missionaries would someone call them hieroglyphics, which is which is not really what they are. Um, uh, most of them sort of have are semantophonetic um, compound characters that do offer sort of an indication of pronunciation but not exact values. So it's not a purely phonetic script, right? Mm. Um, and um, at the same time, there was, and so there was criticism both from Europeans and then um, eventually also from um, Chinese reformers themselves about the practicality of this script. Um, that essentially the argument is that these, these scripts are hard to learn, right? Um, unlike the, say, Roman alphabet, which has, you know, a couple dozen characters in it, Chinese characters number in the thousands, if not tens of thousands. Um, and that it just takes a long time to learn those, right? Um, the, um, the sort of second part of this is like essentially the style and grammar of writing. Um, and so the way that the sort of the style and grammar of writing before the 20th century is often called classical Chinese, um, which is again, one of these very difficult to define catch-all terms. Um, but because we're talking about the way, the style and the way people have written, um, for a couple thousand years. Um, and so it's hard to say that there is a very distinct standardizable classical grammar, but essentially it is generally seen as a written language, right? Um, it often relies upon knowledge and references from other, from older texts, right? That get reproduced in the text, um, often they're, not often, doesn't really have um, punctuation um, and does not mirror, most importantly, does not mirror the way people speak, right? Um, and so Europeans often compared it to Latin, which is its own sort of problematic, um, uh, <laughs> it's, its own sort of problematic analogy, but I think that's sort of a good way to think about what this is. So in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, you have, so you have sort of criticisms coming at um, Chinese reformers in a bunch of different directions about why they keep 
right? Essentially why their sovereignty and why their national survival is in question. And one of them is this idea that their language in all of its components is sort of backwards. Um, and that they don't have a standardized, you know, unified oral language, um, unlike European countries, which essentially hurts their national development. They have this script that some say is very difficult to learn, that hurts their national development, and they don't write like they speak, which means that their written language is sort of elitist and mired in the past. Um, and so all of these sort of debates are happening concurrently. Uh, and one of, the, one of the episodes I get into in my book is this conference to define the, essentially the standardize the oral language. Um, and one of the reasons they had that as one of their first conferences is because these other questions about script and style were so controversial that they thought that oral language would be less controversial. And it still was. But these are difficult questions to ask because essentially you're asking sort of what is the relationship between collective identity, language, and history? Um, like philosophical texts, what do you lose if you sort of throw a lot of these things out? Um, what do you lose if you like if if there's no sort of like evolution? Um, and so that is sort of happening at the same time. I think that answers your question. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. No. That 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 makes lots of sense, and I think uh, leads us on quite well to uh, getting into the actual uh, chapters in which you fo follow broadly chronologically the uh, moves from uh, the late Qing period. Up to uh, up to the sixties, uh, and as I say, indeed, uh, even after that, in the epilogue. Um, so, having kind of looked a little bit there at uh, classical Chinese, and and I guess, uh, yeah, so-called classical Chinese. Well, yes. Actually, that that's that sounds very that sounds like a very negative way of putting it. But anyway, the thing that is called classical Chinese, yes, <laughs> uh, and the imperial era. Um, could you sort of say something about the way that that treatment and approach to language that uh, I guess persisted up to um, you know into the into the Qing era changed with this uh, collision with ideas coming from Europe both in the sort of early modern and then ultimately I guess what is more important to you the the, the modern period how did the uh, kind of yeah impact of uh, outside ideas from Europe in particular uh, change what language was thought to be in China Absolutely. Um, so China has a long history of thinking about its oral languages um, from texts, again, sort of stemming back millennia. We have um, dictionaries, we have um, what are essentially called like rhyme tables, right, where people sort of classify characters based upon um, homophonous groupings, right, which is one of the ways we can get a sense of how characters were pronounced and, and how linguists sort of like essentially reconstruct um, phonology from from centuries and millennia ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and um, towards the sort of the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, you have um, a a real sort of like profound interest in like renewed interest, I guess you could say, um, in these topics um, from in particular sort of a group of scholars who felt as though phonology um, and was 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 one of the best ways to get at how like the essential, the true meaning, the authentic meaning of these classical texts um, was not sort of like these, these interpretations that have sort of taken over um, um, Chinese, um, like, I guess, academia is the wrong word, but Chinese um, intellectual culture, um, but mm -hmm. rather sort of like creating these very, very sophisticated diachronic histories of phonology. Um, but their interest, again, was always sort of in, in, revealing or illuminating these uh, 
these older texts. It was not really in sort of like contemporary nation building. Um, that was not really the impetus. Um, and so what changes, I think, after the Opium War is that we have essentially new groups of, of foreigners who are coming to China. Um, so uh, European Jesuits were in China well before the Opium War, but we have new groups who are coming in as a result of these sort of imperialistic treaties that happened after the 1842 um, Opium Wars. Um, one of them is Protestant missionaries. Um, we also have sort of diplomatic slash like armchair China hand types. Um, and then we also have people who are involved in business um, and people who are involved in scholarship. Um, so these are diverse groups of people, right? But I think what united them is that they were looking at China through a mix of sort of their own observations from this very tiny corner of China that they're able to sort of see and observe. And then they filter that through their own metaphors of European and American history. Um, and to me, I sort of, you know, I, to me, I tease out two basic metaphors, in particular when it comes to language. Um, one of them is that essentially this, this, the written language in China is similar to Latin, um, which I had mentioned before, um, which Protestant missionaries essentially argued that like China needs to have its own vernacular literature movement um, and, and vernacular sort of Bibles, uh, much like uh, had happened in Europe. But the other sort of metaphor is, is this idea that China is this um, country, right? And it needs to have a language. And the only language that unites the entire empire is this written classical, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you, those are sort of the two metaphors that they're, that they're coming at um, China with. And to me, what changes here is that, um, you know, when we're looking in the 19th century, it's not really until the early 20th that you see Chinese reformers are actively citing um, these texts that missionaries are writing um, and texts that, that some of these um, China hands are writing, right? But um, what really changes here is, is to me sort of, of two main things, right? The first is, again, this idea that we need to have a Chinese language um, and we need to define what that is. Um, and the second main thing is this idea of sort of like linguistic hierarchies. Um, so one of the sort of, I guess you could say, intellectual frameworks that is defining the way that Europeans are looking at languages is um, comparative linguistics. Um, that is sort of a big, huge, diverse field, but generally tends to see ling languages as existing in a hierarchical taxonomy. Um, mm -hmm. So there's like the Indo-European language family. And then off of that, you have language groups that branch off and then languages and then branching off of languages or dialects. So if you imagine sort of like a biological taxonomy with sort of the lines coming off of it like a tree, that is essentially what we're kind of what how languages were imagined. Um, and that really sort of affects um, Chinese reformers in thinking about their own linguistic landscape, which is first this sort of like sense of urgency of we need to have a Chinese language if we're going to be a nation. Um, but the second part of this is that we need to start imagining our, um, our linguistic landscape as being in this hierarchical framework, right? Um, and that is how we should be framing our languages as well. And this is not to say that all of Chinese intellectuals thought of it this way. Like there were debates um, largely between Chinese linguists who had studied in Europe and the United States and came back and, and, and sort of scolded others for not thinking of the Chinese languages in this way. Um, but I think that that had a really huge impact on, on thinking about how, what the linguistic landscape in China looked like. 
Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it's a, a very tempting and seemingly productive comparison, that broader idea of Europe as a space and China as a space in terms of thinking about, I guess, yeah, these sort of broader supra languages that have been embedded in religion and uh, other kinds of um, tradition like Latin and classical Chinese and then what vernacular offshoots have come from them. But I suppose if you follow that logic on and if you think of Chinese as one thing, then in a sense, you, you end up having to think that what they speak in uh, Brazil or, or Puerto Rico or uh, indeed, you know, anywhere in, in, I don't know, West Africa where they speak Spanish or France or uh, uh, anywhere else, they're still speaking Latin in those places. Right, which, right, you know, right, right. So uh, there's a lot, there's, there's really sort of confusing disparate metaphors here um, and made more confusing by, as you pointed out, the fact that the, the script is... Um, I mean, again, it's it's not entirely divorced from phonetics, but it is more flexible in terms of how you can sort of pronounce different characters than a solely phonetic script would be, right? And so mm-hmm. there there is that that inherent unity there that that makes that metaphor sort of break down a little bit. Um, mm. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like we're we're sort of essentially trying to reframe this in terms and and by reinventing metaphors that are being um, being sort of lobbed at China at this time. Right. And I guess uh, the biggest metaphor of all, arguably, or the, the sort of container for every other metaphor is the the state and the creation of a republic, uh, which yeah. I think, uh, is, is, you know, itself, I guess, along with a whole pile of other terminology that came from Japanese into Chinese and uh, having come originally from you know, sort of that uh, European collision going on in Japan, um, forming the state and choosing a language for it is the kind of next task once that's been decided. Um, So you chart how, you know, Beijing ends up, uh, or sort of Beijing language ends up becoming the uh, quote-unquote winning Fang Yen. Um, And, and, you know, I think, yeah, looked at, you you mentioned this uh, kind of comparison with France and, um, you know, Parisian French uh, or, or, you know, Britain hasn't quite had the same extent of standardization drives, I suppose, but, you know, sort of broadly Southeastern London t- style English is also uh, the the kind of, I guess, prestige variant or whatever. So it can seem somehow natural that a capital city's language ends up being the dominant one. But that's far from the case, as you say. So what was the sort of process by which Beijing uh, uh, Chinese became the standard? So this was actually one of the most interesting and surprising parts of researching this book. So when I started researching this book, I had been told the story of how the language of Beijing became the national language a bunch of times. Um, And again, as as sort of I mentioned in my biography, I spent a lot of time in the south of China. um, And I would often be told essentially that there was a vote um, to choose to just sort of like pluck a Fangyan to serve as the national language. um, And that... um, sort of various Southern ones, Cantonese loves to to sort of say, um, Cantonese speakers love to say, we lost by like two votes or we lost by three votes, right? Mm -hmm. But the idea, um, whether or not these sort of stories are true is that they operate within this framework that the question for national language reformers was always, which Fangyan do we choose, right? Which language do we choose? And that battles over the national languages, um, like even though they were contentious, reformers were always operating under the assumption that they were just going to pluck an existing Fangyan and make it the national language. Um, and that, when you sort of frame it that way, it becomes very easy to presume that the that choosing Beijing was going to be a foregone conclusion, um, simply because, because it was the capital, um, because more people speak sort of like the, 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 um, 
I guess you could say, Fangyan within the Fangyan region that includes Beijing, as in, like, (laughs) I know that's really confusing, but essentially... The kind of northern family. Yeah, the northern family of Fangyan, right? The more people speak that than speak, say, Cantonese, and therefore it will be easier. But it essentially, when our question is, which one do we choose? It's easy to say, well, it was always going to be Beijing. But what I found in the course of my research is that that question of which one do we choose was not really the question a lot of reformers were asking. They were more asking, how do we actualize the heart and soul of what our nation is in linguistic form, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so because of that, there was this period of really intense experimentation of what a national language could be. And there were people who simply wanted to pick a language. Like those people, they were, you know, and they were looking at France, they were looking at Japan, um, and they thought the seat of government would work very well. Um, But there were some who just really genuinely believed that a language could be engineered to to serve as the soul of the Chinese nation. Um, some of this w- um, came from sort of a, a belief that there was a unified Han language that existed, um, you know, millennia ago, and that like Fangyan essentially, like at their core, were connected to that historic language. And that is what that recreation of that essentially should be like the goal of being the national language. Um, there were some um, really sort of like... Um, experimental types who thought that a language could be engineered to be really efficient, um, that essentially you could sort of take all the Fangyan together um, and make a language that was as scientifically similar to all of them as was possible, um, and therefore was easy for everyone to learn, right? I wonder, Uh, could you just say a little bit more about that? I found that section particularly fascinating. You you talk about this um, this linguist Yenren Chao, uh, who I guess later ended up at Berkeley, but... uh, especially around sort of creating a language that had, I think he was talking about the maximum number of distinctions, um, yes. which, you know, I, I think it's quite an interesting thing uh, that certainly I remember I, I sort of stumbled upon when looking at different dialects, but kind of um, instances where you can see that there are languages that uh, within China or, or, or Fangyan that distinguish between a lot more different kinds of sound than Mandarin does. Um, yes. I remember looking at there's that there's that uh, one among several I think similar things, but there's an that obscure poem about stone lion something yes. so it's all sh, 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 sh. and actually yes. in different in a different dialect it's it's all say sip si sa and it's like a lot of different sounds whereas in Mandarin it's all sh. Oh. Yes. Um, so could you just say something a little more about what this distinction idea was or what Yuan Ren Chao's special uh, sort of focus was? So, you know, what's funny is that 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 sure, 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 sure poem was written by Zhao Yu, by Yuan Ren Chao. <laughs> like oh, okay. So, oh, I didn't know. So there it is. Yeah. Um, and so um, Yuan Ren Chao, um, or Zhao Yuan Ren is, is how we would, you know, um, say his name in Mandarin, right? But he published under Yuan Ren Chao. Um, and so he, uh, he was studying in the United States um, in the 1910s and 20s um, and was sort of really fascinated by this idea of like what a Chinese language could be. And, and his, his sort of idea was that if you sort of took, so an example of that, of that poem, right, where you, you know, characters that in Mandarin would all be pronounced sure might in, in other languages pronounce like or si or all of these, essentially there's more distinctions, right, of these phonological categories that if you include all of those in sort of an invented language, um, that that would be easier for everyone to learn because mm. essentially what you're doing, if if you speak, say, Northern Mandarin and you're, tr- or let's say you speak Cantonese, right? And you're trying to learn Northern Mandarin, 
you're looking at all of these characters that to you sound different, um, but you have to learn that they all belong to this one phonological category in Mandarin. And he sort of argued that the opposite would be easier, right? Mm. Um, and so that was that was his argument. And what I find really fascinating about him is that he was a part of this, this group to essentially, so, so to back up for a little bit, um, in um, so that was one of the arguments he made. And then in 1913, while he was in the United States, um, there was a conference to um, sort of, I guess you could say vote on what the what the national language pronunciation would be, but they weren't voting on like existing languages. They were kind of coming to an agreement of what this should be. And they also agreed on a different kind of like amalgamated um, hybrid language that included parts of other Fangyan into um, a general framework of Northern, um, of, of Northern Mandarin. Um, mm. And um, so once that happened, Zhao Yanren sort of made a recording of it to teach it. Um, and then he went back to China uh, in the 1920s and sort of became very close with a lot of these men who were working on making this as teachable as possible. Right? Um, and then um, eventually he, he just sort of very quietly, he'll, he said in sort of private um, or letters to friends and family that he's like, I just don't think this is going to work. Um, I, I like it's and later on, he would say, how are you going to promulgate um, or sort of like teach a national language to someone uh, or to, you know, 600 million speakers when I'm the only speaker, right? When I <laughs> when there's just this phonograph recording, like that's just not practical. Um, but what I also find fascinating is that in his oral history, he gets asked about this. Um, and the the questioners sort of basically say, like, why did you think this was going to work? And and he, he did defend it. Right. So I think he always felt. I can't ask him, right? He passed away in, in the 80s. But um, I always think that there is this sort of, there was this dream that this was possible. Mm. Um, and it just sort of fell apart um, because, you know, his defense was, well, hey, you know, like Beijing, like, or not Beijing, um, opera stars have been learning other sort of variants of Chinese for a long time in Chinese history. Like, this is nothing new for us. Um, mm. You know, people travel from one province to the other you pick up the, the sort of local language. Like there's, there's nothing new here. Um, and so it's not like this is just totally outside of the box in terms of historical um, precedent here. Um, but it also became clear that sort of in the mid 1920s, um, him and a, and a bunch of others who had been involved in, in sort of experimenting with these, with these other linguistic forms came together and say, yeah, we just need to sort of, at this point, we need something with a big body of native speakers. <laughs> right, right. It was like a fun project, but ultimately kind of. <laughs> yeah. And so. again, I think, I do think people honestly believed in it. It's just yeah. that it's, um, but that, yeah, the, the, the sort of written language, or there's also sort of one other sort of fascinating document that I found um, between um, Zhao Yanren and a Swedish linguist who basically said like, look, you need to like if you don't do this now. If like the likes of you do not just sort of be practical about this, um, mm. then it's going to be much worse down the line. Um, mm. So like this is this, and so I don't know how much that impacted um, Zhao, right? Like I all I have is this letter, um, right. but it it's clear that there is this there's this shift in in like sort of like academic opinion in the early 1920s. I see, I see. So Beijing uh, does end up being chosen, and uh, you kind of document then how uh, I guess some of the uh, I guess broader nation building type projects that continued in the Republican era um, and the cultural dimension to that so people who were exploring folklore and 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 
indeed dialect for its own sake and also ethnography um, after particularly after May the 4th and the kind of modernization drives that accompanied that and that you kind of chart really well I think how that carried forward or, or maybe not even specially deliberately in every case but sort of reinforced the sense that I guess what they were still calling Guoyu was the default and was this sort of um, lodged there at the centre of the, the state. Um, but I thought we'd just jump forward uh, into the, uh, the, the post-1949 um, communist uh, era uh, and, and the establishment of the People's Republic of China. Um, so, I mean, this, as you say, uh, or said earlier, is kind of obviously where we get our idea of Mandarin from these days, from the, the continuation of, of that state, that Chinese state, um, and, and Putonghua rather than Guoyu, as, as it's referred to in, in the mainland. So how far did PRC-era language policies continue what had been going on before? Yeah. Um, so I think the actual policies have a lot of parallels, right? So one of the things that I don't cover in the book, but um, is the subject of, of a lot of interest of a lot of people is how um, the the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP uh, simplify Chinese characters, right? And that all that has precedent that that goes back before 1949. Um, they, um, as far as spoken language, right? They justify this this common language Putonghua as being different from Guoyu, but linguistically, right? There's there's just not a lot of distinction, right? They they define it slightly differently, but there's not a lot of distinction. And then to me, that is sort of the the there, so there is a lot of sort of crossover here, but the ideological justification um, for language policy after 1949, I think, was very distinct. And interestingly, it changes over time because before 1949, uh, the the Communist Party, the CCP, sets themselves apart from the Nationalist Party or the KMT by claiming that they represent the people, um, like the the you know the general people, right? In 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 sort of like thinking about this in in. Um, in, in communist terms, right? Um, and they criticized the KMT for this like homogenizing force of the national language policy um, because it was elitist, right? Um, and there were communist thinkers who argued that actually what should be considered the common language is is the, the kind of language that that you know your everyday workers when they come from different parts of the country, like they figure out how to talk to each other, right? Like they they come to these common understandings and they, and they create these sort of like really um, these creative hybrid ways of, of coming up with ways of talking to one another when their languages were, were more, somewhat mutually intelligible and somewhat not. Right. Mm. Um, and so the movement here from the communists before 1949 was supposed to be pluralistic. Um, and then after 1949, there was this move towards um, a very different view of history um, that is buttressed by uh, Stalinist philosophy which essentially saw the nation as this fulfilled form that needed to have a language and everything else were dialects um, and thus subordinate. And, and actually the, the, the verbiage here is reliant upon the broader language for its definition. Um, and linguists sort of put this as like dialects or fangyan are dependent upon hanyu, which is the word they use for like the broad Chinese language. But putonghua is the language, the common language of the Han. Right. Um, and so even if you don't have to come right out and say that like Fangyan are branches of Putonghua, which if you ask, people would say, no, they're not. Right. There is this ideological justification that this has to be something above everything else. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I will say that even though there is this move among many and 
policymakers and language reformers in particular towards this more hierarchical model, there were others that maintained that the essentially that the communist, a communist state, a communist country needed to be more pluralistic, right? And that pushed for this more pluralistic view of what nationalism under communism should look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I found that a really fascinating kind of tension that you explore there between the idea that uh, the language that actual people speak obviously in some respects reflects more accurately uh, you know the, the the will of the people that was supposed to be being served right in that uh, serve the people dictum uh, of of Mao's. and yet also there's a drive there towards standardization and the need for people actually to be able to speak to one another. I, I kind of reminded actually of the, of the, the last interview I did with uh, Brian DeMar about the land reform campaigns that kind of changed property relations in the countryside and things. And again, there, the ideas and the kind of impetus for this was supposed to come from below. And the process that he that, that sort of uh, that charts quite well there is that the kind of people got, uh, got impatient with it and just sort of said, okay, we're just going to put this thing, we're going to have a model and we're going to just sort of end up impressing our will on on everybody <laughs> and those those pluralistic dreams uh, shriveled somewhat um but i i think yeah it's 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 really wonderful the way that you uh kind of tease out both sides of that that sort of uh, tension and i should say too that as we move into the last couple of chapters of the book you include more material that you've gathered from interviews and and you know kind of supplementing the, the kind of archival work earlier on that really brings it to life too um so i mean just uh as a sort of quick closer on the on the on the people's republic era i mean what then was the fate of yeah fan yen uh under kind of an increasingly vigorous drive for standardization and for promotion of uh, Hua? like what, what what was that what was the sort of could they survive <laughs> right well and so if you go to china today you'll realize they very much did right and so um which is which is fascinating because to me it's sort of a real historical rupture is in, in in terms of official rhetoric is in 1958 um which is when we have the 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 great leap forward which is an economic policy but but extends out to other um, areas of public policy, including language so there was this great leap forward towards Putonghua promulgation um and when that happened, right, the rhetoric became like, essentially, if you are a part of this nation and you are a socialist builder, you speak Putulhua, right? That is, the, that, is, that is the language there and becomes increasingly hostile towards people who sort of cling to their fangyan, as it was put. Um, but, you know, again, sort of, it's very, very clear that this rhetoric doesn't match the reality of what was happening on the ground. And, and here is where, again, sources are, are very few, right? Like, there's not going to be a, a great written record, at least in the archives, of people pushing back against official policy in the Great Leap Forward. Um, but um, what I what I what I found was that we could sort of read in, I guess you could say, passive and active resistance um, in a few ways. Um, one of the ways we can see is that even through like the 1960s and 70s, um, official sort of documents and 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 um, and uh, evidence and primary sources continue to complain about people speaking Fangyan, um, mm -hmm. which could just be, you know, trying to get political points, but could also be like, people are still observing that, that, that this is a, this is a, um, a quote unquote problem, right? Um, one of the ways that I was able to tease out actual resistance is in local theater. Um, so I, I go into the book a little bit about the, the history of theater reform and, and there are other great books on that too. Um, and, 
but essentially what I, what I found was that uh, in the ninth, during the Cultural Revolution, the number of acceptable plays had winnowed down to a very select few, and generally they were, they were performed in Beijing Mandarin. Um, mm. But there was pushback in localities saying like, hey, people here don't speak that language, and if you want them to get the message, it needs, we need to start being able to perform in languages that people understand. And so you get a little bit of give as like, you know, in, um, in the 1960s. Um, and I, I actually, I spoke with a, um, a scholar of, of, of theater in Sunetson University, um, who had lived through that period. And he's like, yeah, you know, it was, it was pretty difficult, but it wasn't really like a language issue. It was just that we could only perform like a few plays, right. And you couldn't just translate them into Cantonese. Like it didn't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, some of the interviews I did was just that there was essentially, you had people trying to teach Putonghua um, to school children going through like a crash course of a few weeks to learn a new language. Um, and that's very difficult to do, right? Mm. Um, and so I talked to people who said, well, yeah, maybe in my Putonghua class, like in my Chinese class, we'd, we'd speak Putonghua, but not in science, not in civics, right? We would just speak our local Fangyan. And then in 1966, schools more or less sort of closed down. And um, I have this great uh, uh, example, or I don't mention this in the book, but um, had talked to somebody sort of after the, the book was already in, in, in press and who said that, yeah, you know, when we were sent down youths um, in the policy after the Cultural Revolution of sending youths to the countryside, we were told to learn the local Fangyan because that's part of learning from the peasants, right? That's part mm-hmm. of being a part of the people. Um, and so there is sort of like, there's the official party line and then there are interpretations of it on, at sort of the local level. And I think that that helps us to understand why we have the kind of linguistic plurality that exists today. Right. We certainly do. I, I remember um, my first sort of um, direct Chinese language learning experience in Wuhan, actually, of all places. Um, our teacher there uh, was someone who uh, obviously spoke some variety of northern group uh, Mandarin, since that is the group to which Wuhan, uh, Wuhanhua uh, dialect be- or language belongs. But his, I mean, his uh, kind of his resemblance to, let's say, a CCTV news announcer was uh, minimal, um, and and you know that's someone who's deliberately supposed to be teaching non-Chinese people uh, standard Chinese. So it's certainly yeah. alive, alive and well in many many cases. Um, and well, and you, oh, hmm. sorry, as I say, and what a lot of people point out is that like Mao Zedong himself did not speak standard Mandarin, right? Um, right. And so these these leaders um, who were representing the nation um, also didn't, right? They they didn't. Like they didn't sound like the Beijing subway announcers do today, right? Right, right. <laughs> and I think you, you you bring us up to the present really well in a, in what is I think a very kind of poignant epilogue, uh, perhaps more poignant than we'd like it to be. In 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 one particular case, um, you you do chart some of the uh, ways uh, that Fang Yan are being used in the present, including in yeah you know, some really cool uh, Sichuan hip hop, um, but also uh, you discuss uh, Hong Kong and and can and the place of Cantonese. Uh, yeah. Both actually in Hong Kong and in in Guangdong, uh, where you mentioned you also spent time. So, could you kind of finish up uh, by saying something about Cantonese and its place within uh, within Hong Kong, and and you know, I guess the kind of questions of of nationhood and, and belonging that uh, you explore throughout the book. 
Absolutely. So Hong Kong is a really particular place, right? It's a, it's a post-colonial space that is, is technically under the administrative umbrella of the People's Republic of China, but has its own history and trying to carve out its own sense of identity. And actually, as this book went to press, um, it was right at the beginning of this of this huge protest movement that, that began in uh, June of 2019. And so a lot of like it, things were changing really, really, really quickly. And I, and I didn't get to sort of put that all into my book. Um, but there's a lot of research, right, on whether Hong Kongers see themselves as promoting a unique identity that is neither national nor local and actually trying to break free of these modes of defining collective identity um, that are often limited to national or local, right? Um, and this has been, I think, especially true in the ongoing protests against um, the Communist Party's encroachment on Hong Kong. Um, and this isn't something that is easily coverable because it's, it's a really complicated sort of topic. Um, but I'd like to pull out that there is sort of one strain of identity that I think um, sort of comes through both after the protests began and before, which is trying to reclaim Chineseness from a like Communist Party defined narrative, right? So from the Hong Kong perspective, and I think that there's a good amount of evidence to back this up, that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to enforce this one homogenous narrative of what it means to be Chinese that combines national identity, ethnic identity, and political loyalty, right? And they tether that to Mandarin. Um, and since a lot of Hong Kongers certainly reject that latter part, the political loyalty, they're often seeking to reclaim the former. And that often comes out in Cantonese, right? With this idea that Cantonese is more Chinese than Mandarin, right? That it, it, it has a longer history. It has a closer link to sort of historical texts. Um, and I love that you see parallels of this a lot of times in like protest art from the, from the Hong Kong protests of like reclaiming Ming dynasty figures as being sort of like, um, the historical precedents to their protest movement, um, like putting them in protest masks and stuff like that. Um, and so Cantonese, I think, has become this language of protest because Mandarin has become associated with this notion of Chinese identity that marries ethnicity, national, like national identity, and then political loyalty. And I'll, I'll sort of end with one really interesting example from a few years ago, um, which is um, this, this sort of beautiful kind of like... Um, dystopian film, like anthology film called 10 Years, which came out in 2015. Um, and it and it sort of looks at these snapshots of what Hong Kong might look like in 10 years or five years from now. Um, if um, like there is more communist encroachment on the city and sort of a winning, winnowing away of, of, of Hong Kong's autonomy, the autonomy that it is, it has more or less enjoyed. Right. Um, until now. Um, and so there's like there's false flag assassinations. Right. There's there's, um, there's some really, really sort of violent vignettes here. But one of them, one of the vignettes is called dialect. Um, and it looks at a sort of like new laws in Hong Kong that require the speaking of Mandarin. And um, it follows the story of this Cantonese speaking um, taxi driver um, who finds all of these things sort of like taken away from him because um, he can't speak Mandarin, right? So like he um, he can't get customers. He has trouble ordering, um, a, you know, an, a drink at a cafe. Um, and so what I find really fascinating about this example is that it shows that two Hong Kongers, because this film really resonated, um, not being able to speak Cantonese. Um, is 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 sort of as oppressive as like national security laws, right? Or at least you can put these in sort of the same 
realm, maybe not as oppressive, right? But like you can put these in sort of the same narrative. Um, and so to me, Hong Kong, even though it is this unique example, it is a really telling example of how there is an attempt to reclaim a Chinese identity that doesn't have to be all one homogenous thing. Right. And that like so much in all the rest of the book is uh, just a really fascinating lens to look at things we may have heard about and I guess historical processes we may have studied or been aware of, um, but through a, a completely uh, new and, and, and innovative lens, I think language provides a, a really cool and, and incredibly revealing, as you show, um, way of, of, of examining things which uh, include, uh, as you say, that very contemporary and, uh, I guess, pressing issue of uh, what is going on in Hong Kong. Um, Gina, there's uh, a million other things that I think it would be amazing to discuss from this book, but uh, should probably leave some things to be read about by uh, listeners who therefore may also be spared having to listen to a four-hour-long podcast. Um, but <laughs> before, uh, before we do wrap it up ahead of four hours, um, I'll ask you, uh, what is it that you're working on at the moment? What is it that's kind of come along after this, uh, this language-y project? Is it more language-y things? It's not, actually, but it is more collective identity things, identity-y things. <laughs> um, so sort of keeping with my, my fascination by, by trying to sort of break apart this idea of an essentialized, homogenous Chinese identity, um, my next project is trying to look at sort of a global history of, of Chinese-owned and operated restaurants um, and looking at this linkage between um, sort of Chinese identity um, and food. In particular, I'm really fascinated by um, the way that these sort of categories break down, much like the idea of the Chinese language category kind of breaks down when we look at its history. Um, I'm really fascinated by sort of how the, the, the category of Chinese food kind of breaks down when we, when we examine how people are expressing their sort of own identities in practice, whether it's, you know, sort of claiming which, which region of China gets to represent this Chinese food, or, um, as an example, closer to home here, um, in San Antonio, right, like restaurants that are Chinese owned, but serve ramen and sushi, right? Mm. Um, and, and sort of playing into this idea of like an Asian cuisine and how that fits with the, the question of sort of Chineseness in food as well. So that's the new project. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that sounds equally wonderful. And uh, it'll be great to talk to you again when uh, when that one uh, appears in the world. Um, but uh, in the meantime, Gina, thank you so much for appearing on the show today. It was uh, uh, really fascinating and, and a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you too, as ever, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>